Hey, Bruce. Hey, James. Guess what? I don't know. Tell me. We have a celebration today on the Weekly Driver Podcast. Welcome back to our listeners. Bruce, today we are celebrating our 150th episode of our little fiefdom that we have. Holy smokes. So congratulations to us. And Time flies. I think that you have a little ceremony to do. I already did mine, but I don't know if the mic will pick it up. But there you go. Salute to you. Cheers to us. 150 episodes. We're still friends. How about that? Mm -hmm. Well, we always drink beer, don't we? Pretty much. (laughs) I thought what we would do to celebrate, welcome back everybody to another um, stimulating episode of the Weekly Driver Podcast. Um, I am James Rea and I write an automotive column for Bay Area News Group. And I published the website, theweeklydriver.com, which now is in its 16th year. My friend and colleague is Bruce Aldrich. And today we're going to look, take a look back at our almost three years of doing this now. And uh, Bruce and I both had an assignment. Last night I went through the episodes that are archived. And I picked out five episodes among the many that I like, but five in particular for all kinds of reasons and i think bruce has done the same so no, i picked six he picked six so he I'm, didn't I'm play by the five rules. and one runner up i almost did that but i didn't so what we're going to go through today is uh uh look back and uh i'll just go through some stats that we had um we've um we've had on a lot of different guests but we've had on authors and CEOs of car companies and analysts and vintage car collectors and website owners and race car and motorcycle drivers. We've had on a stuntman. We've had on a museum curator. We had on a city mayor. We've had on small business owners, memorabilia collectors, guests at auto shows that we've been to. We've had on car auction experts, vintage car rental shop owners, an automotive painter, a for, and former cyclist who restores uh, classic junkers, and we've had on junk car haulers. We've had on a lot of different people. Am I le- probably leaving out a few categories? Artists. Artists. We've had on artists. And our first episode was on Monterey Auto Week, and we posted that on September 7th, 2017. So within a few days, we're at three years of doing this. Hmm, I'll be darned. Isn't that something? Our sound quality is uh, somewhat <laughs> still a little suspect, but, but we're, we're uh, it's gotten okay. a lot better. So that all of that said, uh, Bruce, do you want to uh, go in reverse order of the? Or did you have, are they are they in reverse order of your least of the five or six favorites to the most favorite, or did you just do it in random? Mine, mine are random, and okay. I started with number eighty-four. Okay, shoot, what is eighty-four? That one's about uh, the TV show Toy Makers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's with David Ankin, uh-huh. and he's a I guess he's a TV production guy. He ha- that's his own production company that yes. puts that uh, that show on. Yes, it's like a reality uh, live uh, TV type one of those shows yes. where they, he makes cars. Yes, crazy, weird, yeah. fun, cars. off the hook, as very, you would say, off very the- expensive cars. Creations is what he called them. Uh huh. And uh, I thought it was interesting that. Uh, the price and the time that he must spend on some of these cars. And I asked him about that. If he yes. had a budget, he goes, Nope, no budget. <laughs> no budget. I don't keep track of things because <laughs> if I, if I really thought about the price, I wouldn't build them. That's right. So, wow. I guess that uh, TV show makes him a lot of money. 
It does. And I, I, when I remember that guy. I think we had him on twice, actually. Um, what surprised me, and it maybe it shouldn't because we're not, I don't think we're in the demographic of his audience, but that it's so popular. I mean, he just, when he brings these cars to a location, he gets just swarms of people. And then the TV audience is huge. And I didn't realize that there was such an audience for that kind of thing, but I guess you're, you're supposed to be a car guy here. Supposed to be a car guy. Come on, no, I like it. I watch him. I think it's great. Yeah, I it's like great. all those yeah. where they create. Where uh, they create something with metal and make a car. I think it's great. sky's the limit, and he just does it right. He, yeah. Yep. Um, one thing, you know, you ask him uh, how much horsepower is enough, or how much horsepower is too much. No, yeah, and he just stops. That, yeah. That's like an insult. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> there is no such thing as too much horsepower. But you know, a lot of car guys think that. And and I do remember also. I'm, I'm glad you picked this guy because I not that I had forgotten him, but when you mentioned his name, he was a very cordial guy, happy to talk to you. Oh, thanks, fellas. Thanks for having me on. I mean, you sound pretty humble, guy on on our podcast, and um, he's the man in that world. I mean, he's pretty prominent, and he. Um, he, he just, he looks like he might be, um, this is a stereotype, he looks like he might be kind of a badass, but he's just like Mr. Humble. Oh, he, yeah, he yeah. he's uh, he's rough and tough for yeah. sure. He rough, and, yeah. Um, he's been around cars all of his all life. All of his life. He's, uh, he was a former stunt driver, I believe. That's right, you're right. I guess he could, technically still is because he has these creations right. with super high horsepower and he drives them and he drives them fast and hard. That's right. He does a little tire smoking now and then. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he's uh, he's quite the car guy. Yeah, I'm glad that we got to some public relations person mailed that to me, and I didn't know anything about it. I'm glad you did, and it's it was it was been really fun to know that guy a little bit. Not really know him, but to get to talk to him, he's good. He said he'd take us for a drive if we got back there to see him. That's right. He I'd did love say, to. <laughs> he, he did say that. I might I might watch, but you could do all that. Okay, I did mine in reverse order of um, just uh, the top five, and, and not a disparaging comment to anybody, but not, not my number five is a guy uh, who makes stone automobiles, Chris Miller. And um, <clears throat> we found out about him. His, his, one of the articles that one of the, the, his first stone car was featured on a, uh, a newsletter that I get, and he is in a little town, uh, uh, Callis, Vermont, and he makes. Now he's made two. And now he's got three more contracts. He's a he's a, a pretty prominent artist with uh, traditional sculptures of like he'll get a contract for a building and he'll he'll do all kinds of uh, traditional um, figures of, of people and and the other kinds of art. But he saw an old Volkswagen uh, years ago uh, that was done in memory of Woodstock, and he decided to do his first stone car. And it's fascinating stuff. And then he's done a second one in front of a car wash. And it's fantastic. Um, we have some nice video and pictures of it. And he takes, you know, several weeks to do this. He gets local people to get involved. And um, he's got three or four more contracts in the works. So I just found this guy in a little little small town in Vermont. And it's his life passion as a, as a mason, as a sculpt, sculptor. And now his deal is he's just he drives around and found, finds an old patina truck, and that's kind of his um, motivation or his his starting it, point for his yeah, creations. Starting point for yeah. creations is finding these old trucks, and um, that guy has also invited us out. He said, "If you come out this way, um, 
I'll buy lunch and, uh, you know, whatever. So he sounds like a pretty nice man, too. So that was my number five. Chris Miller, yeah. yeah. I, he, actually, he was on my list. Too. Oh, oh, sorry. So you, you stole one of mine. Sorry. But yeah, he, he created what he's known for is this life-size truck. It was like, a, I forget, a 1954 or so Chevy. Yes. I believe. And it was a uh, made out of stone. Right. He said 10 pallets of stone. Right. Plus a few more. And at 40,000 pounds, he estimates that yes. thing weighs. So. That's incredible. Life-size. So, yeah, Life-size. That's, uh, that's a lot of rock. And then the, the new one um, has a waterfall, has night lights. And uh, I, I was a little bit surprised that, it, that a person who has a car wash would find that in a budget somewhere to, to make that your welcome to our car wash. <laughs> it's a, I thought it would be in front of a bank or a prominent building or a car dealership, but it's in front of a car wash. And uh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it, if the pictures of that thing, I don't know how he makes it, but people are finding, finding out about the guy. And um, he told me he has three new contracts. So good for him. Good. Yeah. All for us. Uh, yeah, we should get a, a finder's fee. We should get a finder's fee. Okay. Next one I had was uh, the Ford Bronco edition. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was the uh, podcast number 141, so that's pretty recent. Oh, I forgot to um, mention, by the way, uh, Chris was number 134. Sorry. This one was uh, uh, Brian uh, Raybold. He was an expert uh, with Haggerty, the, uh, oh, yes. the car uh, insurance outfit. Yes. Um, Anyway, he did. Uh, he knows everything there is to know about Broncos, and the uh-huh. reason why that's in the news, obviously, is because the 2021 just debuted. Uh, yes. What a month ago or so. Yes. But the old Broncos, he knows them inside and out. Yeah, that guy was great. <laughs> the last one was '96, and that was the last generation. I be- five generations, I believe. The new that one sounds is right. Six. Yeah. So the '96, 1996, was the last year of them, and that was the one that. Uh, the year of uh, Orenthal, O.J. Right. Simpson, o. Simpson. Uh, <laughs> drove to the low-speed chase. The infamous chase. Bronco yeah. chase, yeah. Um, yeah, that I, I can't remember in, in recent years uh, any vehicle that got, well, maybe Tesla, but any, any uh, high-selling volume vehicle that got more attention before it came out. Corvette, the Corvette, then, then don't the, count the Corvette. Then, then <laughs> okay. it's pretty, it's pretty high. Yeah, yeah it's pretty high. But the the Bronco just, I guess I should just say it got an awful lot of attention. Be it was anticipated for quite a long time for it to come out because it'd been what twenty five years, and um, at first you didn't like it. I remember you said, "Oh, I don't like it," and then you kind of looked at it more and and like a lot of people, as more pictures came out. Yeah, it, it looks sharp, looking good. Yeah, yeah. and I just re- read recently that now uh, a company has created for the Bronco. And maybe for the Ford Explorer, uh, um, I guess you'd call it a camper cover, uh, customized camper that you can do with the Bronco and the Explorer. Maybe they're going to do it with some other SUVs. It's going to be like the Jeep. I'm sure there's going to be yeah. the, the accessory market is going to be huge for that. Thing. Yeah, off road, yeah. off road RV, off road camping. I guess you would call that, right? Yep, glamping. Glamping. There you go. So anyway, uh, yes, please. Just one more thing. Sure. From Brian Raybold of the uh, Haggerty, they they do a lot of their work is valuation of older vehicles, mm-hmm. and they listed the most expensive Bronco is the version w- number one. Yes. The first one that was sixty six to seventy seven were the years built, and the valuation the median is fifty thousand dollars on that one. And do you recall Bruce uh, when you bought that car new? What it, was it a five thousand dollar? 
You know, I don't remember asking him that, but yeah, it was probably a $5,000 car. Yeah, yeah, Uh, interesting. Um, By the way, another cheers to you. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. We're celebrating. Uh, Number four for me was a guy that um, I was over uh, having lunch one day, and uh, my... all of a sudden, I looked and I saw an old Bentley in the lot that I'd parked my car in to have lunch, and it was a—it looked like a pair of green, uh, dark green and light green saddle shoes. It was a two-tone Bentley, and I saw the guy coming out of the same place where I was eating, and I had a little conversation with him. His name is Joe Palmer, and we started talking. And uh, we're in Sacramento, and the guy is in Midtown, and Bruce and I went over and sat in the guy's backyard, and I think we, had, we sat in the Lincoln uh, and interviewed him, and this guy, I think he's got, I don't know, 12 cars, 9 or 10, 12 cars. He used to have 18, but they're all kind of in his extended backyard, home shop, whatever you call it, and the guy was just- Right into the alleyway. Right into the alleyway. The public alleyway. And uh, we just had a good old time talking about this guy, uh, interesting guy, an interesting house, and um, he just loves- finding these cars and we were sitting in a car that he had sold sight unseen to a woman I believe in Southern California and we could have I could have laid down uh in the back seat the back seat was six feet from the front seat something like that huge car 50 something Lincoln maybe I don't know what it was but uh, that guy was so interesting and we talked about um I remember that he had decided that what he would do is have a little company that if you were having a graduation or a night on the town or celebrating an anniversary, you could call him up and he would come get you in one of his cars. And then the, uh, he put the, the, he got the, somehow somebody told, told the city about him or something. So the kibosh was kind of put on that, but he does it anyway on the side for friends, but just talk to him about, um, God, he had a he had an old he had a rare Rolls Royce I think in there, and he had a uh, some I I call them bubble cars, some really top curved cars. Maybe there was a an old Plymouth in there, and a, he kind of had cars that nobody else wanted. Is yes, the way I would kind of say it. And Thank old you. Old cars, old cars, interesting cars, but they wouldn't be the first car that somebody who was a real collector would want. Like if the like a 56 Chevy, for example. Right. You don't, you don't get the four-door. You get the two-door. Well, he would have the four-door. Right. That type of thing. That's right. So Thank you. they were, and they were all driver cars. These were not, by any means, uh, show cars, concourse no, quality. No, 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 these no. are These were maybe not rough, but certainly not show quality. No. Which was nice, because he'd take them out all the time. He'd drive them. He'd drive them. He's, they're meant to drive, he said. That was uh, podcast number 109, and we did that one. I want to go back a little bit. Um, Chris Miller was um, posted on May 22nd. Joe Palmer, number four on my list, was posted October 27th, 2009. So um, shows you that we've we've uh, we've done our due diligence and in, in numbering these and having a date on them. And by the way, just to cover the base, there every all of our podcasts are archived on theweeklydriver.com, and they're all archived on your favorite podcast. Um, outlet whether it's itunes or iHeartRadio, there's a variety of them they're all list stitcher they're all listed on my website so you have a youtube channel too your youtube channel we used to uh do uh youtube videos that's right and um we're also now on alexa which i have to post the code to that i didn't know that till a while back um 
my wife just brought her Alexa into the house one day and, and said, surprised me, she said, uh, Alexa, put on the Weekly Driver. So our, our Weekly Driver podcast are all on Alexa. Oh, that's really scary. Yeah, pretty scary. And so uh, we have uh, Chris Miller, as I mentioned, number 134 so far, and Joe Palmer, number 109. You're up, Bruce. Uh, next one, uh, Patrick Foster. Do you know what number that is? No. Okay, 120. Okay. You know what it's regarding? Patrick Foster. No, shoot. <laughs> I'm 65. I, my memory's gone. He's an author. It's called 80 Years of Jeep. Oh, that's right. That was another interesting one. Yeah, yeah, it was. Go ahead. The Godfather of the Jeep. Yes. Every nut and bolt for every every Jeep ever made. Yes. But it was really interesting because they made them back in World War II. Right, the original Jeeps with the yep. nine-slot front grills instead of seven, I guess. Willys made them. Yeah. Ford made them. GM, maybe? Maybe. I think there was about you're, three. You're, you're the knowledgeable guy Willys, on that. Willys and Ford certainly made them. Mm-hmm. It's the definitive definitive book on the greatest four-wheel drive vehicle ever made. Ah, what That a t- was his words. And what I, a title. I think he's true. It's oh, true. sure. Yeah. Iconic. Um. Imagine doing a, a, a when you do a, a a book like that, and I think we asked him about do you like do you put up a thousand three by five cards all over one side of the room, and you have to you have to whittle it down to the top five hundred topics that you have, or maybe he had three hundred images or something in the book. I don't know if that's even accurate, but you've got to do a lot of slicing and dicing, I think, to condense it into a book. Because you've got so much to, to deal with. That's a hard process. Yeah, he had full access to all of, uh, mm-hmm. well, you know, Jeep got sold. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, uh, was it AMC and, and Chrysler and various owners. So, but he got access to all the original archives on all the various uh, generations of Jeeps. So he had tons of stuff he had to call through to, to make a book. Yeah. So his is it's definitive whatever he has in that book. I find that pretty fascinating when someone has the word passions become a cliche, I think, but he had so much passion. You could tell and all the we've had several authors on and they all just it what came to mind was that guy who went around the country finding um barn finds and some of his experiences, a young guy who drove and sometimes he was welcomed into a small town, sometimes he wasn't. But um he yeah. just had a passion like this guy did and he wanted to do the definitive book on on Jeep, and he, he did wants it. to share. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the pictures oh, that he had. Great. Oh, it was a great book. Great yep. book. Yeah. What do you got? Okay, number three. I really got a kick out of interviewing the stuntman Robert Nagel, who did all of the work and taught um, the two stars of Ford versus Ferrari how to drive. Um, and I just remember him. We were asking him um, a couple of things come to mind, and I'm sure you'll remember Bruce more the detail. But how fast the car went on a on a on a rail, right? 150 miles an hour, uh, and that Christian Bale was pretty good at it, and Matt Damon wasn't. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, but that he, guy was great. His company actually built a a flat race car, if you will. Yes, that the actual prop um car that that the the actors are filmed in Mm -hmm. rides atop this this flatbed truck if you will yes flatbed race car yes and so the actors are really not driving they're just sitting in this car on the flatbed truck that that could go up to 150 miles an hour yes 
a, ca- a camera platform or a car platform, I think yes. he called it. And they lost Very one. One of them burned. One of them burned. I think yeah. he said they had to build another one. Um, that guy was from Walnut Creek, by the way, my hometown. Oh, okay. And um, he's worked on, uh, gosh, almost a hundred movies or something. Uh, Fast and Furious. Yeah, most all of this. them. Yeah, most of the Fast and Furiouses. He told us there was a whole bunch of anything that's uh, car racing. Right. His company does. Yeah, he he was a, a really interesting guy behind the scenes of of that, and he, I think he did say that. Um, Ford versus Ferrari. Maybe he says this more often, but it was one of his uh, crowning moments. He thought it was, you know, accurate, and he loved working on it. And to find out about those guys, um, you know, the real story was was interesting. And we both saw the movie. Um, it's a good movie. It was yeah. a good movie, and uh, some of the things probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have happened. It's a little dramatic license, but. But nonetheless, there's the, some silliness. Like there's some always, silliness. Yeah, <laughs> in a movie. Yeah, but but uh, the relationship between those two guys and their families and um, the uh, the the desire to win, Ken Miles, uh, it was really interesting stuff. So that guy was fun to find out about, fun to speak with, and um, another guy who said, "Hey, if you're ever in the area, stop by. We'll have lunch." So one of those outgoing guys that you'd like to meet because he's. Uh, I think he won an Academy Award. I think he's got some, you know, he's got some uh, pedigree, as they say. Hmm, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that was number three. That was Robert Nagel. That was number 105, and we posted that on October 1st, 2019. Uh, next one I have is number 58. Mm-hmm. It's a about Consumer Reports, the magazine. Oh, yeah. So that write-off sounds boring, but... It wasn't. Not in the this least. This guy, um, Mike Quincy, mm-hmm. uh, we talked about his reliability uh, survey discussion and what Mike does. Mike, um, he have their own test track. Yes. They buy their own cars. Right. They test them, long-term testers. Yes. And eventually they sell them, and they sell all their cars, all the cars that they don't use anymore. Mm-hmm. They sell them to the employees. Fantastic. Yeah. If they can't get rid of them, then they go to the auction but uh they do mostly all sell them in-house anyway he uh he's been doing working with them for more than 20 years he drives them mm-hmm. he buys he them purchases them too yeah. yeah they don't tell anybody right at the last second I the think. last second he says yeah. this is consumers report right uh and i think he if i remember correctly he's purchased 300 cars i think he said so that's, a, that's a good batch yeah uh, they said they do about 50 cars per year that they test, long-term test. Yeah. I remember one of his anecdotes was one of his, on a small scale, I don't, I'm don't. i not comparing myself to Consumer Reports because I've gotten some of these emails too. His favorite car, the highest rated car that he ever tested was a BMW. But he, they marked it down because the cup holders were flimsy, if you remember that. And he got some nasty grams. I mean, the car got 99.9 out of 100, whatever the criteria was, and he still got people bitching because they made fun of a BMW. And so he said, you know, sometimes you can't, (laughs) you just can't win. And sometimes, again, as a smaller scale, I'm not Consumer Reports, but people have said, you know, um, you know, why are you always writing about uh, Japanese cars? Why don't you just write about American cars? How come you don't write just about Ferraris? So you always get people who are 
they they get asked for a recommendation then if you recommend something and say oh no no this is better than what you're recommending they just want to they just want to tell you what they want you to hear right so um i can't imagine a guy people so in love with bmws that they'd find complaints because the the guy said the cup holders were flimsy that's that's pretty uh pretty picky I thought it was interesting. He talked about um, his relationship to the manufacturers. Yes. Um, in other words, if some say something, the uh, braking distance was way out of whack, uh, too long, then they'd have a discussion with the uh, manufacturers, and uh, they could maybe figure out why. Maybe it was different tires than what the manufacturer tested with. Or um, He said for the most part, though, the manufacturers know what they did wrong. That's right. That's he said memory, the engineers yes. always want to do it right. Yes, but the finance people—they're the ones that say no. You know, uh, whatever it is, uh, twelve-inch brakes is what's required. But let's put elevens. We can save you know ten bucks on the brakes, or right? What have you? And it's the the darn bean counters that wreck a car up, and the engineers know when they put something less than what they really want to put out there. Right. I think another thing that I'm sure people know, and it's always good, I think, for me to to revisit, is that Consumer Reports is not influenced by advertising. Right. They don't have any. They don't have any. And they buy their own cars. They buy their own cars. And I'm not going to na- say the names of any other publications, but all of those publications, I bet, also claim that they don't, they're not influenced by advertising. But as a journalist, tell us how it works. Well, (laughs) I can say that sometimes if you have a million dollar ad campaign and you are a publisher, you might uh, be influenced to write about that particular car more often than another brand. I'm not saying that you're always going to say flowery things about it, but I can see that if your publication X and, you know, manufacturer Y says, hey, we got we're going to support you all the way, and we got a five-year advertising contract. I'm pretty sure that in this day and age, where publications are closing up every day, that there's some influence there. That um, you're not going to talk about that flimsy uh, cup holder. Yeah, or you might, and that'll be a flimsy cup holder. Or, or if you go through the content, if it's a 60-40 or 50-50 ad ratio, and it, of that 50% that's advertising, 25% is Ford. Let's just say. Um, that there might be more articles in your publication about Ford than another manufacturer. Well said. Yeah, so I think Consumer Reports, you know, hats off to them that they can, they can, uh, they've been around for a very long time and, and um, they do it the right way, obviously. And I'm, and I'm not saying others don't. We love Haggerty's magazine. Uh, Haggerty is fantastic. But it does have advertising and, and, um, uh, there's just some some influence there on on some level, which, hey, I own a website. I know what advertising is about. It's not accusatory. It's just the way it is. So, all right. What do you have? Number two, uh, one of the most one of the maybe the the most fun and most interesting people I've met uh, as a kind of a guy who really hasn't covered that much motorsports through the years. But when I got a chance to meet Mary McGee. Uh, at Laguna Seca, they brought her in years ago at um, motorcycling, motorcycling uh, champion national championships, and 
there was kind of a there was a press room and a kind of a makeshift um, storage area for they had some folding chairs and tables and it was it was pretty makeshift area and there weren't very many journalists there and this guy came over and said James I'd like you to introduce you to Mary McGee Mary McGee and um, she came over and she I never met her before she gave me a big hug you know and she's very outgoing woman and she was the first female to uh, ever race a motorcycle at Laguna Seca and um, she lives in Ferndale I believe is that right I might have that wrong anyway she's in her 80s now and um, I did a story on her for the Monterey Herald and then when she came to Sacramento she was invited to the Sacramento Mile and they brought her in and Bruce and I went over to a hotel uh, in Sacramento and sat down and had some iced tea with her talked to her for more than an hour I think and, um, you know, her history of motorcycle racing, the, the Baja events that she did when there were, um, she told us this great story. Um, it's a little off color here, but she, she laughed. She said that, that one of her stories is that she slept with two women, two men in one night because <laughs> it was cold and she put her sleeping bag down between two guys because it was warm. And she tells this off color story, uh, one of many wonderful stories about being, you know, wrenching for her own for her own trip and and the people that she's known through the years and she's um she's one of the guys she's one of the guys and she's as strong as can be and to see some of the old images of her coming down the corkscrew at laguna seca um and some of the stories she told about um being in coffee shops where they didn't want to serve her they weren't quite sure what she was about or who she was and um it was just fascinating to meet this woman and we still exchange emails to this day so it's she's great yeah, she they they wouldn't serve uh, bikers. Bikers, because it was yeah. about the time of the uh, the wild ones with Marlon Brando, and people were a little intimidated by that. Um, so I thought she was just fascinating to to meet. She was like a Marlon, the female Marlon Brando. <laughs> female right? Marlon, I think so. I didn't she's see her smoking er- any cigarettes. She's from that era for sure. Yeah, she was great. Um, so that was my number two. Uh, that was episode number ninety eight. And that was posted on August 14th, 2019. Number 114, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Do you recall that one? Yes, I, yes, I do. That was about autonomous racing. Yes, it was. was. The big news was they are going to have a autonomous race there. Yes. Uh, in other words, no drivers. Yep. In 2021. That's right. Controlled from a building nearby, right? With university people. Yeah, the uh, various universities were going to be the competitors. Yes, and we're going to we build, were invited build cars mm-hmm. and race them in Indianapolis. Fantastic. Twenty twenty one. It's to push the technologies and actually, you know, create new technologies. Yes. So, I kind of think that would be pretty cool. We'll see what it happens. I, what is that going to be? Fifty mile an hour cars driving around crashing into things or? And it they're going to go 150. It wasn't going to be very many laps either, I was it? I hope it's the latter. The short laps. I mean, I've never, uh, 10 laps maybe, something like that? Is I don't recall the length of the race. Yeah. Um, they, 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 If I remember correctly, um, you probably have more details. They opened up the entry when just, just before we talked to the guy, and they'd already had several entries from several countries. I think they had, what, six or eight entries? Yeah, yeah. Like University of California, Berkeley, Stanford, uh, maybe University of Michigan, um, and some other university I've lost track of. But they, I mean, right away they had people who were ready to go. Million dollar prize. Yep. And it's a two-year contract, so 
it'll go more than once, hopefully, and we'll see how it goes. I for kind of forgotten that they invited us, but we should. That would be great to go to. Well, it's probably COVID. probably autonomous, uh, autonomous. fans too. <laughs> yeah. Cardboard in fans. Other, in other words, no fans. No fans. Cardboard fans, like they do at right. baseball games. Um, when did when did we do that one, Bruce? Do you have the date on that? I don't have the date, but it was number one one four. Number one one four. So we've come to my number one, uh, and I think like Mary McGee, this uh, guy was great to meet. We've interviewed a lot of people by phone, but we got a chance to meet Alex Hunold. Uh, I had met him once before in Salt Lake City and had done a, a magazine story on him, and then we got the chance to Bruce and I were at the Consumer Electronics Show, and we set up an interview with him. We drove to his home uh, in Las Vegas, and uh, I was worried because we were, we were going to be late. We called him, and we got to his house, and he was just waking up. It was noon. And we spent, oh, I don't know, almost um, well more than an hour with him. And um, he showed us his van. Uh, he had a new uh, Ram uh, ProMaster, I think. Is that the I think account? so. Who's Alex Hunnell? Oh, Alex Hunnell. I know him. But... Thank you. I'm sorry, Bruce. I got ahead of myself there. Uh, Alex, uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, climbed El Capitan solo without ropes, and uh, first person to ever do that, and... Um, crazy sac- good movie. Crazy good movie, Sacramento edge guy. Of your, edge of your seat. You know the outcome, you know he made it, but yeah, you're still it, uh, you're on the edge of your seat. Edge of your, edge of your seat. Guy, crazy risk. And crazy. We had interviewed him before the movie came out. We knew that it was coming out, and... Uh, when it came out, of course, it won Academy Award for Best Documentary that year. And uh, we got a chance to sit down with him and all of his <clears throat> preferences about living in a van and how self-contained he was. Um, since then, you know, he's become quite, he's traveled around the world. He's given TED Talks. He uh, has gotten married to the girlfriend that was in the movie. And um, he's doing great things now. Haven't seen him for a while, but that was my number one pick just because, you know, he's just an interesting one-of-a-kind guy and... That was way back at episode number 22, and we posted that on January 13th, 2018. I remember that you took some really good pictures of him uh, standing on the side of his van, and he was, he's very natural. He, he's very good. He's a very photogenic guy, and those are really good pictures you took, I remember. Thank you. Yeah, um, <clears throat> if you're into climbing, you do these. You need to strengthen your hands and your fingers so they have these finger grabs that normally a person would put, you know, on a door jam or somewhere in the patio or something. But he did them in his van because that's where he lives most often, actually, because right. he's always out on the rocks yes. and, and living in a van. Right. That was our take on why we spoke to the guy. Yes. In fact, when he was about 18 or so, I believe, quite yeah. young, he left, left home in the family's was it a minivan yeah and lived in that thing for several years <laughs> yes until, nine, nine years i think until he <laughs> some but he finally started making it big by all these free climbs people yes. started getting interested in him and he started getting sponsorships that's when he bought a uh the ram van and, and then it was like luxury because it had more space but he he preferred i said how often do you do you like he had just recently purchased a house there in vegas and yes. i said I'm thinking, uh, you know, once you get to a house, are you ever going to want to stay in that van except yeah. for maybe an overnight? Yes. Oh, actually, I prefer it. Yeah, I prefer like, it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was an interesting guy. Um, if you've, you know, interviewed a lot of athletes uh, and you've kind of, you know, we've done some of these things together for several years, but a lot of times um, you talk to an athlete and it's, it's all about the athlete. 
But I remember, uh, which is what it's supposed to be, but I remember, uh, Alex, a couple of times asking you and me about what we do. And then the time that I met him for breakfast in Salt Lake City, he was asking me, well, what, what's it like to be a, a reporter? Um, you know, where do you go? And he took, he took interest in the person who was interviewing him, which is, you know, I don't find that that doesn't happen too often. And not only that, but um, we were sitting there and he was staying in a, uh, they, they had put him up in a, he has a lot of contracts. And so they, pretty nice hotel. And we were eating a, for breakfast. It was kind of expensive. And he, he asked me flat out, you know, are you, um, are you on expenses this trip? And I, and I said, no, I'm, I'm here on my own. And, um, uh, he said, well, uh, I'd like to buy your breakfast. And I, I mean, not that it was because I got a free breakfast, but, um, I just thought that was uh, a really nice touch from a young guy who, just took it upon himself to do that. And I thought that was a really um, genuine thing for him to do. And I said, well, that's very nice of you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for meeting me at whatever it was, 6.30 in the morning someplace for an hour before the big trade show. Yeah, he's pursuing something that he loves to do, which is which is climbing, hanging out on rocks. Yeah. And I think he seems like he's like totally amazed that somebody would pay him to do what he loves to do. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? And the other thing is that he's not taking any risk. More than half the people around, because half the people have maybe high blood pressure, right? Or they have high cholesterol. They're the risk takers. Yes, he's got his stuff under control. And climbing out on a rock—what's so risky about that? Yeah, feels you know, more comfortable. 2, 000, yeah, two thousand feet up with no ropes. Hey, why that's not? not? That's not risky. And I, I think um, in a bunch of different areas, I'm, I was pretty fascinated with the guy because he's done a lot of magazine stories, and if you see. Um, stories about him in very specific magazines, like whatever it is, Mountain Climber Magazine, Rock Climber Magazine. Outside. Outside. Um, you know, his physique reminds me of motocross guys or cross-country skiers. There is not an ounce of fat on that guy. Wiry. Wiry and ripped. And um, I had a chance many, many years ago to cover some cross-country skiing. And he, it re he reminded me of those men and women who would, when they come in and they would They'd unzip their tops, and you know the guys would just be uh, ripped, lean, whatever the proper terminology is. And the women are the same way, and certainly Alex Hunold is the same way. He can't afford to have an extra ounce anywhere because he's climbing, right? And he looks great. And his fingers are like oh gosh, yeah, almost twice as wide as a normal. Isn't that something? Finger. Isn't that something? Yeah. They were not normal hands. No. But it's because they, he's been conditioning them for so many years. Yeah. They are strong. And what, he has some funny, I know we're getting off the car topic, but he had some, and you, he doesn't drink um, hot beverages, except that when he was invited to China, he didn't want to insult them, so he drank some hot tea. He only drinks... He's a very minimalist. I yeah. asked him if he drank coffee. No, no, no. it's too much trouble. Or I don't know. He didn't say too much trouble. But but the reality is, I think it's too much trouble, too much when, trouble. You're the, when you're in the little van. Yeah, it's just a hassle. So you know why? Yeah, why do it? A perfect. Uh, nothing wrong with buying a bag of noodles and and a can of spaghetti sauce and having pasta for dinner. That's what he would do. And he you know go to Walmart and Walmart and pick it up. And he was very comfortable with the simplicity of things. Yep, and uh, so that was number twenty-two again. That was uh, pretty early, obviously, in our in our uh, podcast longevity. January thirteenth, two thousand eighteen. So that's the end of my list. Number one, Bruce, drum roll. Number one for you. Uh, I already did it. Sorry, pal. Did you? Would you remember? I did uh, five plus a runner-up. That's well, right. You took one of mine. So. I took one of yours. That's right. So, so five. 
Thank you, Bruce. I forgot about that. Um, so uh, here's to you. Thanks for being our, our host for three years, and we're going to continue as best we can. And uh, we'll be back soon with, uh, we'll begin our next 150 episodes, and we'll see where it goes. Hopefully, we'll go to L.A. for the L.A. Auto Show. It's still up in the air. We're not looking. It's, not, it's doubtful. We'll it's see. It's doubtful, but that would be fantastic to go because it's going to be a really interesting year. So thanks for joining us once again on the Weekly Driver Podcast. Make sure to visit my website, theweeklydriver.com. All of our podcasts, again, are archived, and I have a newsletter that you can subscribe to for free. Um, So thanks again, Bruce, for co-hosting, and we'll talk to you soon.